So it's been a privilege to be with you this weekend, and I'm thankful for the opportunity that I've had to get to know some of you who I have not met before, and my wife and I have certainly enjoyed renewing acquaintances, and it's a homecoming for her, and it feels like coming home for me too. I know so many of you, so we've had a good time, and I pray that what we've talked about this weekend will be a blessing to you as you seek to gain a deeper walk with God. Before I have prayer, I'm just going to remind you that we are going to have a question and answer session, and a number of you have asked a lot of excellent questions. I have a whole stack of them here, and feel free when we come towards the end, if some of you haven't had a chance to write out a question, there's some yellow sticky notes down up front here that you can come and write questions, and we'll get to many, as many of them as we can before the end of our meeting this evening. Um, so let's go ahead and bow our heads for a word of prayer, and we will begin. Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to come together one more time. I thank you for this weekend that we've had to have an emphasis on the spirit of prophecy, and I pray that you will guide us in a special way. Sometimes when we deal with objections to belief, when we deal with questions, um, we have to walk a fine line between placing ourselves on the devil's vantage ground and and being honestly open in seeking truth. And so I pray that we would be able to walk that line and that we would be able to, to deal with these issues without creating doubt. So I thank you again for this opportunity and bless us now, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> you know, one thing I will say as we start this last presentation, um, you have to be careful in how you ask questions. It is good to ask questions, but when you say, I'm going to play devil's advocate, you are placing yourself on the devil's ground. Because when you start to think from the other side, you're placing yourself on ground where you're looking at things strictly from a human perspective rather than from a spiritual perspective. So it's good to ask questions. If you have questions about things, it's like, well, how do I explain this as opposed to intentionally playing the other side when you know that the side you're playing is wrong? So just keep that in mind. But we're going to deal now with answers to objections about the spirit of prophecy. And I'm going to deal with... <coughs> two or three main areas, depending on how much time we have. And then there's a number of excellent questions that I want to make sure we have time to get through. So um, we're definitely going to spend some time with the questions, and you're going to want to hear the questions, um, some well-thought-out questions from students and from perhaps others. And so we'll deal with a few areas that are common objections to the spirit of prophecy, and then we'll deal with some of the questions. Let me say this. Um, most, of the most of the resources I used for this last presentation comes from the book by Frances D. Nichol entitled Ellen G. White and Her Critics. How many of you have seen that book? Some of you, many of you. If you have questions, that is the book to read. And it's very objective and it goes through all of the issues. And if... I had known of that book before I found that website 20 years ago when I was in college. Um, it would have saved me a few troublesome days of wondering what is going on here. And all of those questions have already been answered. So, the well, so the, for sure we're going to deal with the issue of plagiarism, where people claim that she plagiarized. And then um, we also may spend a little bit of time um, on the shut door theory and also perhaps on the issue of amalgamation of man and beast. There's so many other things people will pick at, but those are some of the big areas that um, people talk about. And perhaps I'm dealing with these issues because it goes back to my experience of being a college student, and those were three of the main areas that that particular individual was picking on. Let me read to you, um, and this is from F.D. Nichols' book, and this is the charge as it relates to plagiarism in the writings of Ellen White. And I think it's helpful for you to have answers for this because you may run across this if you haven't before. Here's the charge. In certain of her books, Mrs. White 
copied extensively from other authors without giving credit, generally without even using quotation marks. And this, she pretends, was all revealed to her directly from heaven. Now, this is the, this is the charge. In 1883, she published her work, Sketches from the Life of Paul. She used large portions from an 1852 book by Coney Baron Housen. And then they go on to say The Great Controversy is her most popular book, and yet much of it is taken from Andrew's History of the Sabbath, Wiley's History of the Waldenses, and Daubigny's History of the Reformation, along with parts of Uriah Smith's book, The Sanctuary, and James White's book, Life of William Miller. And there's a few other things that are mentioned. Um, so there are perhaps other books that some people pick out a little bit, but the two main books that get most of the, the attention where charges of plagiarism are leveled towards Ellen White are the book Sketches from the Life of Paul and also the book Great Controversy. Now it's interesting, and this doesn't disprove this theory, but one of the first persons who took the lead in making these charges was a former Adventist pastor at the time of his death. He was an Adventist pastor and then left the faith by the name of D.M. Canwright. Most of you have heard of D.M. Canwright. Here's the funny thing. D.M. Canwright wrote a book entitled The Bible from Heaven, which was the exact same title of a book written years earlier by an Adventist minister by the name of Moses Hull. And if you look at the books, there are large sections where Canwright copies Moses Hull's book extensively without giving credit and uses word-for-word -word verbatim. So then Canwright goes after Ellen White for doing the same thing. So that's interesting, just as a, as a side point. So Canwright's blasting Ellen White for doing such and such, yet he himself clearly did that which he was accusing her of. And that's irrefutable. And you can see that in the book um, that F.D. Nichols put together. However, let's look at this charge more carefully. We're going to start with a great controversy. So um, they're saying, okay, she copied large portions from Jan Andrews' book, History of the Sabbath, Daubigny's History of the Reformation, Wiley's History of the Waldenses. And by the way, if you haven't read those books, you should read those books. I've read large portions of Wiley's book and some of Daubigny's and some of Andrews. I haven't finished all of them, but excellent reading. And here's the thing. Seventh-day Adventists at the time that Ellen White wrote the book Great Controversy were clearly familiar with all of these books, especially a J. and Andrew's book History of the Sabbath, which was widely read, along with Uriah Smith's book The Sanctuary and James White's book Life of William Miller. So on those books alone, if Ellen White is trying to pull a fast one, on Adventists by quoting extensively, and I put that in quotation marks, extensively, from books that were widely read by Seventh-day Adventists, I mean, they would have immediately recognized that she was quoting from these books, and if there was something wrong with it, um, people would have recognized this pretty quickly. So it's not like she was pulling, if, if she was referencing these books, it's not like she was quoting from um, obscure sources that nobody would know about, and then like, oh, oops, they caught me. No, she's, they're basically leveling charges against her towards books that were widely known within the Adventist church. Jan Andrews, Uriah Smith, and James White were Seventh-day Adventists, obviously. Now, Daubigny and Wiley were not Adventists, but they, these history books are excellent. Now, Ellen White had actually encouraged people to read from Daubigny and also from Wiley. Notice what she says. This is Review and Herald, December 26, 1882, where she says, Provide something to be read during these long winter evenings. For those who can procure it, Daubigny's History of the Reformation will be both interesting and profitable. From this work, we may gain some knowledge of what has been accomplished in the past in the great work of reform. Now, if Ellen White is trying to copy from a book and hoping that people won't notice that she's copied from it, while at the same time encouraging people to read from it, that doesn't make a lot of sense, right? 
Like if you're trying to hide that you're copying from a book, but then you're encouraging people to read from it, why would you do that? You see the point? And then she also um, knew that, Ad, I mean, Adventists were very familiar with Wiley's history of the Walden Seas. Um, Adventist leadership offered it as a premium with Review and Herald subscriptions. And so this was um, a widely um, read book among Adventists as well, not to mention the other books that were mentioned. So this is what F.D. Nichols says, and I think this is worth quoting from him. This is in his book, Ellen G. White and Her Critics. Mrs. White must have known that her readers, preachers and laity alike in the denomination, would see immediately that certain passages in the great controversy were not original with her. In other words, that she could not have thought that she was going to deceive them into thinking that the writing was wholly hers. And that leads on to another equally obvious conclusion. Mrs. White must have felt that she had nothing dishonorable to hide in the matter of this literary borrowing and that her borrowings could be harmonized with her claims to inspiration. To draw any, now listen to this, to draw any other conclusions than these would be equivalent to saying that in publishing The Great Controversy, Mrs. White deliberately set out to expose herself as a literary thief and prophetic fraud. You see the point? She's like saying, okay, read these books. These are excellent books that you should be reading. And then if what she's doing is dishonorable, then she puts these quotes into the great controversy and puts it out there to say that she's not of God. That's obviously not what she was doing. And the same thing applies to the book Sketches from the Life of Paul. She says in Signs of the Times, February 22, 1883, page, and this was on page 96 of that volume, The Life of St. Paul by Coney Barron House and I regard as a book of great merit and one of rare usefulness to the earnest student of the New Testament history. So again, <clears throat> Ellen White is encouraging people to read a book that critics have said that she copied largely from, and my understanding is that perhaps there's 7% of the entire book sketches from the life of Paul that um, has um, certain borrowings from that other book. We're not even talking ab about more than 10%. Did she borrow from these authors? Undoubtedly she did, and she addresses that in the introduction to the 1911 version of the Great Controversy. You can read in her own words what she says there. Now, here's the other thing, and the White Estate has done a very nice job of presenting this, but when it comes to copyright laws and what constituted plagiarism in Ellen White's day, what Ellen White did in that time was perfectly legal, and there was nothing um, out of the ordinary with um, how she borrowed from other authors at that time. And she makes it clear in the book Great Controversy in the 1911 edition, she simply says that when I found a passage from another author that perfectly stated that which w had been revealed to me and that conveyed the idea well, I simply borrowed that and placed it in the book. Because listen, Ellen White, who has prophetic authority, which I believe we've clearly established this weekend, as she sees God speak to her and as he reveals things to her, if she sees something that's written down by an author that fits perfectly with her understanding of what has been revealed to her, to her there is no dishonor or difficulty in placing that into her book. <clears throat> now let me place it to you another way. If you read the writings of Paul in the New Testament, for example, Paul quotes liberally from the Old Testament. Like you go through the book of Romans, you go through the book of Hebrews, and Paul is like splicing verses together from all over the place. He's quoting Psalms and Isaiah and Habakkuk and Genesis and you name it. And he's just, he, he's a master of scripture. He was a man mighty in scripture. And sometimes he'll say, as it is written in Isaiah, or as the prophet Joel said, or whatever it may be, um, and I'm not saying specifically in a specific verse that he said the prophet Joel, but you get the point. Sometimes he will say, as the prophet Isaiah says, or as this prophet says. Sometimes, though, he's just quoting, and he's not saying, I quoted this from Psalms. For example, in Hebrews chapter 10, verses seven through, or 5 through 7, he's quoting from Psalms chapter 40, verses 7 and 8. And he doesn't say, I'm quoting from Psalms 40, verses 7 and 8. 
And so if you're going to level charges of plagiarism towards Ellen White, just realize that Bible authors also quoted from other places and didn't always say, I'm quoting from somewhere else. And you may also be aware of the fact that the book of Revelation, 70% has um, illustrations or reference back to the Old Testament. So those are just a few points worth considering when it comes to the plagiarism charges. I, I'm just kind of answering some of the basic points. Great Controversy and Sketches from the Life of Paul are the two main books where this charge is leveled. And the main point I want you to take away from that is that Ellen White was quoting from books that were widely read within Adventism at that time and which she had encouraged people to read those books. So it's not like she was trying to do some mass cover-up. And interestingly, Can Wright, who first started leveling those charges at her, was someone who had quoted, used the same, written a book, used the same title of a previous book, and then quoted largely from that book. So... Just keep that in mind. So that's the issue of um, plagiarism. Now the shut door theory, I think we have time to hit that one as well. Um, there was a time in the early Advent movement and right after the great disappointment where they believed that the door of probation had closed for the world. Now, when you understand the parable of the 10 virgins, Ellen White says that that parable has been and will be fulfilled to the better, very letter, but it continues to be present truth from that day to this. Um, some ministries have gone to town with that comparison and make themselves the modern Miller-Wright movement and come up with all sorts of interesting speculative ideas um, that are not very helpful. But um, it is true that the Miller-Wright movement was a fulfillment of that parable. Ellen White says so. And it is true that um, a door was shut, and you can see this in Revelation chapter 3 to, in the message to the Philadelphian church, where God says, I have closed a door that no man can open, and, and I've shut a door, or I've shut a door that no man can open, and I've closed, anyway, I'm messing it up, but you know what I mean. <laughs> open and shut, that's all you need to know there. Um, <laughs> and that's Jesus moving from the holy place to the most holy place. I should have opened my Bible there, sorry about that. Um, and so it is true that Ellen White was among the early Millerite believers after the Great Disappointment who believed that the door of probation had closed for the world. And in the parable to the Ten Virgins, um, it says the door was shut. Um, it says, while the foolish virgins went out to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went, with, went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgin, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. So they're saying, okay, the door shut for probation for the world on October 22. That was a belief among certain of the Millerites, and Ellen White was among those who believed that. But you know, Ellen White was not a prophet yet when she believed that. So there's a difference, right? She never claimed in vision that the door shut for the entire world. She never wrote that, but she did write in her um, writings that the door of probation did close for some. Not for everyone, as they originally had believed, but for some. And she says, and this is... Review and Herald, January 14, 1932. I hereby testify in the fear of God that the charges of, of these brethren who are saying I taught this are not true. Um, with my brethren and sisters after the time passed in 44, I did believe no more sinners would be converted, but I never had a vision that no more sinners would be converted. And I'm clear and free to state, no one has ever heard me say or has read from my pen statements which will justify them in the charges they have made against me upon this point. It was on my journey east to relate my visions that the precious light in regard to the heavenly sanctuary was open before me and I was shown the open and shut door. We believed that the Lord was soon to come in the clouds of heaven. I was shown that there was a great work to be done in the world for those who ha had not had the light and rejected it. And she goes on to say, 
um, certain things. She says, I saw that in 44, God had opened a door and no man could shut it and shut a door and no man could open it. Those who rejected the light, which was brought to the world by the message of the second angel, went into darkness and how great was that darkness. So in other words, those who specifically rejected the light, the door was shut for them. So there's other things that we could say about the shut door, but it's basically a non-issue. People try to say that she taught in her writings that the door of probation had shut for the entire world. And she says very clearly in the statement that I just read to you that as a prophet, as a messenger of the Lord, she never taught such a thing. She believed it before she had her first vision. But that is a big difference because before her first vision, she was not a prophet, right? It was only after she had a vision that she became a prophet for the Lord. And at that point, she gained clarity on that view. And in a, as a prophet, she never taught such a thing. Um, let's see, how are we doing on time? So I, th I think we can hit the issue of the amalgamation of man and beast, and then we'll have time to get into some of the questions that have been asked, and there's a lot of excellent questions that have been asked. So the charge about this amount, how many of you have heard of this issue of the amalgamation of man and beast? So let's, let's deal with this. Here's the charge. Mrs., Mrs. White teaches that before the flood and also afterward, men cohabitated with beasts and that the offspring constitutes certain depraved races of men today. She is here simply revealing a credulous belief in ancient myths regarding strange creatures produced by unholy alliances between human beings and beasts. If progeny could result from such unions, it would support the anti-biblical doctrine of evolution, but it is an unscientific statement, wholly fanciful. Later on, she suppressed the statement. So what of this? Well, first of all, the only passages in Mrs. White's writings that are ever cited in support of this charge are found in Spiritual Gifts, Volume 3, published in 1864, and republished in Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 1, in 1870. The earlier volume is devoted to a recital of the story of man's early history, beginning at creation. And this is where the what the statement says. But if there was one sin above another which called for the destruction of the race by the flood, it was the base crime of amalgamation of man and beast which defaced the image of God and caused confusion everywhere. God purposed to destroy by a flood that powerful long-lived race that had corrupted their ways before him. And then um, that's Spiritual Gifts, Volume 3, page 64. And then Later on in um, the next chapter, she says, every species of animal which God had created were preserved in the ark. The confused species which God did not create, which were the result of amalgamation, were destroyed by the flood. Since the flood, there has been amalgamation of man and beast, as may be seen in the almost endless varieties of species of animals and in certain races of men. So those are the statements that critics say that she is saying that man and beast came together. But is that really what she's saying? Um, so these are Mrs. White's only statements on this subject. What Mrs. White meant by these passages has been the occasion of some speculation through the years. And um, certainly her critics have tried to make a lot of hay out of this. Uh, Mrs. White speaks of two clearly distinguished groups. So let's look at this. Mrs. White speaks of two clearly distinguished groups that testify to this amalgamation. There are one species of animals and two races of men. There is no suggestion, and this is an F.D. Nichols word, and I find this to be very helpful. There is no suggestion that there were species part man and part animal. She never says that. But how could there be amalgamation of man with animal and the result be anything else than hybrid man-animal species? She does not even hint of subhuman monsters or caricatures of man. On the contrary, as just noted, she speaks unequivocally of species of animals and races of men. That's the first point. Point number two, Mrs. White speaks of the almost endless varieties of species of animals that have resulted from amalgamation. Now, the standard attack on Mrs. White in the matter of amalgamation is that she reflected the thinking of those who believe the fiction of man-animal crosses, if we rightly understand that fiction as has been as it has been wafted through the centuries by the winds of credulity, a, lar a few large mythical creatures of antiquity were supposed to have resulted from a union of man with animals and so on. But Mrs. White really wasn't expressing this. Really, if you're looking at this, and this is really just a lesson in the English language, she says, amalgamation of man and beast. And she's basically saying that... Um, species of animals amalgamated or cross, or basically mixed, 
And then she also said that about men. But, but it would be a stretch based on reading everything that she says here to say that she was claiming that man and beast mixed. That's my understanding then. And, you know, people are always going to look for reasons to question the spirit of prophecy. But, I mean, if that's the best that you can throw at me, you got to do a better job than that. Like, I'm going to give up my belief in the visions that God gave to her that clearly came in a divinely appointed way because you're going to split hairs on amalgamation of man and beast versus amalgamation of man with beast. And she didn't say man with beast. She said man and beast. So to me, uh, people will look for reasons to not believe, but um, I choose to believe because things like that don't shake me at all. And I mean, to me, there's cl a clear explanation as to what she meant. The issue of plagiarism, she followed the standard during her time. She wasn't following the standard of 2016. She lived in the 1800s and the early 1900s. And she followed what was standard practice for her time. And she encouraged people to read the books that she quoted from. So it's not like she was trying to cover something up. And the shut door theory, she has made it very clear that, yes, personally, she believed in such a shut door before she became a prophet. But after God gave her vision, she saw very clearly what that concept entailed. And then the issue of the amalgamation of man and beast, she's not stating that man and beast mixed, but that there was amalgamation of animals, amalgamation of man. Now, I'm going to... Um, go through some of these questions that have come through. And if, if any of you want to ask questions as well, there's still this paper up here. You can come write it down and I'll pick them up. And um, we still have plenty of time. And I think you're going to find these questions perhaps even more interesting than the issues that we've dealt with so far. So, um, so I'm, I'm greatly appreciative for the questions that have been asked. And if you have other questions, um, you can come, um, there's these yellow, yellow sticky notes down here up front, and if you have questions, you can write them down and we will, we will go through it that way. That's the format that we're going to follow. So if you have a question, write it down and we will address it. And then if I still don't answer it, I'll be happy to talk with you afterwards. So that's um, the approach we're going to follow. So the first question um, is what is the balance of using scripture and the spirit of prophecy when preaching or presenting to others? Example, you know, how many quotes of Ellen White versus the Bible? Very good question. Now, and I'll mention this, you know, because this was a spirit of prophecy week, and I understand that the majority of what I was quoting to you was from the spirit of prophecy. And yes, I did have some Bible passages, but mostly from the spirit of prophecy. But I certainly encourage the majority of what is presented to be from the Bible with supporting statements from the, Ellen, from the writings of Ellen White. I know that I've preached some sermons recently where I don't think I had any quotes from the Spirit of Prophecy, but usually I have at least a few. Um, but I always try to make sure that the Bible is the foundational framework for, for the thrust of the message that I'm giving. And so um, I hope that you'll come away from the understanding with, with an understanding this week in that the Bible is paramount. It's the greater light. The spirit of prophecy is the lesser light. It's the same source of inspiration. But really, um, the Bible is where we lay our foundation. So, you know, I would encourage um, laying your, you know, if you start off a sermon, try to lay the foundation from the Bible and bring supportive quotes in from the spirit of prophecy as you can. And, of course, you know, let the Spirit lead. But, yeah, definitely use plenty of Bible. <clears throat> now, um, this is an interesting question that says, how long should one remain a Seventh-day Adventist member while they blatantly disregard or confess unbelief in the spirit of prophecy? Now, that's a, a, a tough question, an interesting question, but I would say this. You know, the belief in the spirit of prophecy is one of the fundamental beliefs of the Seventh-day Adventist Church because of what the Bible says. If you in your conscience cannot believe in the writings of Ellen White, um, the honest thing to do would not to be a Seventh-day Adventist. Like, why would you stay in the Seventh-day Adventist Church 
and try to convince people to not believe in Ellen White, when let me tell you something, there are always going to be Seventh-day Adventists who believe in Ellen White. We're not going away. We're going to stay in the church, and we're going to continue to support her. So if you're not in support of the spirit of prophecy, and if it's something that you feel strongly that she's not inspired, then really the honest thing to do would be to step away. But I might add, and I hasten to add, I hope that after you've been here this weekend, that your heart has been softened if you had unbelief, and that you would choose to come back to a belief in her writings. So, um, okay. Now, this is an interesting question. We may spend a couple of minutes on this. Very good question. It says, is the world church wrong in voting down women's ordination based on the fact the spirit of prophecy speaks of women being pastors? She speaks of this in Cole Porter Ministry and Christ Object Lessons. Excellent question. And I am going to read to you now the statement that you are referencing. And we are going to see what the spirit of prophecy says on the issue at hand. And I'm not even going to... I mean, I'll point you to 1 Timothy chapter 3 uh, for further study. That's where we go to in the Bible. But let me read to you what Ellen White says since you're saying, well, Ellen White says that women can be pastors. So let's see what Ellen White says. And this is also found not only in um, Co-Porter Ministry. It's originally in Testimonies for the Church, volume 6, page 322. It's also in Review and Herald, January 15, 1901. Here we read, all who desire an opportunity for true ministry and who will give themselves unreservedly to God will find in the canvassing work opportunities to speak upon many things pertaining to the future immortal life. The experience thus gained will be of the greatest value to those who are fitting themselves for the ministry. Now here's the key sentence. It says, it is the accompaniment of the Holy Spirit of God that prepares workers, both men and women, to become pastors to the flock of God. It's like, oh, wow, that settles it, huh? Men and women to become pastors to the flock of God. Now, if you notice the sentences that, that preceded it, it talked about true ministry being found in canvassing work opportunities. And so the context seems to strongly suggest that being pastors to the flock of God comes in the canvassing work. And she goes on to say that you will learn how to pray as you work and that you'll be educated in patience, kindness, affability, and helpfulness as you do canvassing work. And I'm sure those of you who have done that have found that to be true. Now, she also says in Review and Herald, April 4, 1882, if there is one, one work more important than another, it is that of getting before the public our publications, which will lead men to search the scriptures. Now, if you're getting before the public our publications, that's canvassing work. And she goes on to say, missionary work, introducing our publications into families, conversing and praying with and for them is a good work and one which will educate men and women to do pastoral labor. So again, the context of this statement as well as the previous one strongly suggests that this pastoral labor that men and women are called to do is the work of canvassing. Now, she has some other statements besides the ones that I just read that clarify this very strongly because I can tell you that those who push strongly the idea of women's ordination um, to positions of headship within the Adventist church use the quotes that I just read to convey the idea strongly that Ellen White supported the ordination of women to the pastoral ministry, but notice now what she says in Testimonies, Volume 5, page 60. The primary object of our college was to afford young men an opportunity to study for the ministry and to prepare young persons of both sexes to become workers in the various branches of the cause. Now, did you hear that? So for men, it's an opportunity to study for the ministry and, to, and for young persons of both sexes to become workers in the various branches of the cause. That's Testimonies, Volume 5, page 60. And then in Volume 5, page 597, she says, Those who enter the missionary field should be men and women who walk and talk with God. Those who stand as ministers in the sacred desk should be men of blameless reputation. Yeah. 
you see the difference she's making? So sometimes people say, oh, well, Ellen White says men and women can be pastors of the flock of God. But if you read the context, and by the way, context is important. The context makes it very clear that the pastoral work she is speaking of is canvassing work. But when she speaks of the ministry, she says, those who stand as ministers in the sacred desk should be men of blameless reputation. And earlier she says the primary object of her college was to afford young men an opportunity to study for the ministry and to prepare young persons of both sexes to become workers in the various branches of the cause. So that's a case of simply letting all of the testimonies speak for themselves. For example, if all you had was from the third angel's message, and by the way, this is found in the third angel's message, the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. That's the third angel's message. But we use all of the Bible to understand that the the fire that destroys the wicked, Revelation chapter 20, verse 9, God sends fire from God out of heaven and devours the wicked, and that the wicked becomes stubble, as the Old Testament describes, and Scripture describes of Lucifer, that never shalt thou be any more. we put all of that together and we understand that the results of that fire are eternal, but they are not tormented eternally. So sometimes you just have to put everything together and there's that one statement, one or two statements where it talks about men and women as pastors, but you understand that's in the context of canvassing work, but ministers in the sacred desk, she refers to specifically as men and within that same passage says men and women can do various lines of work, but it's men in the sacred desk. Okay. Let's um, look at a few other things. Okay, this is a good question. Does Ellen White and the Bible contradict each other on the subject of Christmas? Well, I've heard some say that um, the book of Ezekiel condemns a tree that's related to Tammuz and it's pagan and all of that. But you have to ask yourself the question when you speak of an evergreen tree. When I First of all, when I drive down the road and I see a cedar tree, who made that cedar tree? Did Tammuz make that cedar tree? And, you know, how far are we going to go back? Are we going to say that pagans and Tammuz have a monopoly on an evergreen tree? Or are we going to say that God who created the evergreen tree is the one who made it? So notice what Ellen White says about a Christmas tree in Advent. Adventist home, page 482, shall we have a Christmas tree? God would be well pleased if, no, no, she says he would be well pleased if on Christmas each church would have a Christmas tree on which shall be hung offerings great and small for these houses of worship. Letters of inquiry have come to us asking, shall we have a Christmas tree? Will it not be like the world? We answer, you can make it like the world if you have a disposition to do so, or you can make it as unlike the world as possible. There is no particular sin in selecting a fragrant, fragrant evergreen and placing it in our churches, but the sin lies in the mode of which prompts to action and the use which is made of the gifts placed upon the tree. The tree may be as tall and its branches as wide as shall best suit the occasion, but it let its boughs be laden with the golden and silver fruit of your beneficence and present this to him as your Christmas gift. Let your donations be sanctified by prayer. Christmas and New Year celebrations can and should be held in behalf of those who are helpless. God is glorified when we give to help those who have large families to support. So notice she says, you know, on Christmas we should be using this as a time to help those who are in need and we should use it as a time to give thank offerings to God and in fact God would be well pleased and by the way when she says this it's making it very clear that no you are not committing a crime of paganism by offering a thank offering to God on Christmas you know sometimes we can become a bit extreme when we try to separate ourselves from the world And I'll say this, I was in a place one time, and I won't say where and I won't say when, where the way some of the people that I was with, the way they were doing a certain reform, and I won't even say what it was, was so beyond what Ellen White even says, that when they would give messages from the pulpit, which were good, 
um, the people were afraid that if they accepted what was being said from the pulpit, then eventually they would have to do what the people were doing externally. And it was so beyond what inspiration even says that it turned people off. So you have to be careful. When you start going down the anti-Christmas route, that when you go beyond what even Ellen White says, um, that you can make Christianity to be unattractive. And look, there are certain things that God has clearly called us to turn away from, but if we're going beyond what God has called us to turn away from, then we can make Christianity and Adventism into an unpleasant experience for all, and we don't want that. All right, <clears throat> this was a question about plagiarism, which I think we addressed. Here's a good question. This is, how do you show or prove Revelation 19.10 that says, of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus, worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, or no, that the testimony of Jesus and the spirit of prophecy is Ellen White's writings as well as the Bible and not solely the Bible. Some people refer to this verse as the Gospels or Bible prophets. Now, you bring up a good point. Now, we talked about this in our sermon today. Revelation 12, 17, and you should get your Bibles out if you have it. Revelation 12, 17 says that the remnant church has the testimony of Jesus Christ. And Revelation 19, 10 tells us that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, but in the part of the verse before it says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, John is about to fall at the feet of this angel to worship him, and the angel says, don't worship me, I am of your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then in Revelation 22, 8 and 9, a same, very similar scene. John is about to fall down at the feet of the angel to worship the angel. And the angel says, don't do it, for I am your fellow servant and of your brethren. And instead of saying, who have the testimony of Jesus, he says, I am of your fellow brethren, or I'm, of you, I'm your fellow servant of your brethren, the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book, worship God. So in other words, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, which means it is the prophetic gift. If one has the testimony of Jesus, it means they are a prophet. Now, I will certainly clarify that um, I am not saying that Ellen White is the only one who has had the testimony of Jesus. Every prophet throughout the history of Scripture, and even those, there are certain prophets that Scripture talks about who didn't write in the canon of Scripture. Any prophet has the testimony of Jesus. But in Revelation 12, 17, it says that in God's last day remnant church, they have two key identifying characteristics. They keep the commandments of God. And remember, when the Advent movement came onto the scene, they came onto the scene of Christianity where all the Christian churches were worshiping on the first day of the week. And God says, remember the seventh day because he knew the world would forget it. And as he went into the most holy place, he needed to raise up a movement that would call the world to remember the seventh day as the Sabbath. And he also showed that there would be within the midst of that remnant church the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy, which is the prophetic gift. So there would be a prophet in the remnant church. And when you follow the test of the prophet um, to the law and of the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Ellen White clearly speaks to the light of the Bible. And she clearly points people to Jesus, and clearly that which she has foretold has come to pass. So, um, basically, my response is that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It applies to any prophet throughout the history of this earth. And in the remnant church in the last days, it especially applies to Ellen White. But we recognize that every prophet in Scripture has the testimony of Jesus. <clears throat> All right, let's see here. As a neurologist, has reading the counsels of Ellen White helped you in the work that you do? Are, you, are there incidents where non-Adventists are astounded by the knowledge that you, you've learned prior to your neurology experience? Yeah, that was a great question. You know, clearly, uh, as a Seventh-day Adventist physician, I have an advantage that non-Adventist physicians can't understand. Um, 
Now, there's certain things that are just common sense, like being nice to your patients when they come in to see you. Um, you'd be amazed at how many rude doctors there are who think that they can get by with being grumpy and gruff and rude and mean and short, and they tend to be in the surgical specialties, but anyway. Um, <laughs> so it seems to somehow attract that kind of personality. Now I know some very nice surgeons, don't get me wrong, but um, somehow um, people with a mean disposition tend to go that route. But um, there's certainly something to be said for having a Christ-like disposition as you interact with your patients and as you enter into um, you know, the bedside of a patient in the hospital who's sick or who comes to your clinic and they are worried about whatever, the, what, whatever they may have and they're wondering what's wrong with them, when you can bring into that room um, a disposition, a Christian disposition that puts them at peace and puts them at ease and they understand that you know what you're talking about um, because, look, if you go into medicine, God's not looking for below-average doctors who barely get by. That's not a good witness. Um, you want to do all that you do to the glory of God. But there is also something to be said for combining knowledge with the Spirit of Christ and with the Adventist advantage of the health message that we have. And so certainly um, explaining to people the relationship of health and of lifestyle and of diet with their health issues. Um, I, you know, I don't know how many times people have said, well, my doctor's never told this to me before. Um, you know, they've been to their primary doctor, and um, sometimes their primary doctor is hopelessly overweight. I've had people tell me, you know, my overweight doctor told me I needed to lose weight, so I never went back to see them again. Um, so... Um, Um, and I understand some people have struggles in those areas, but, um, and I, I understand that myself, um, but certainly we have an Adventist advantage, and we want to live up to the light and the counsel that we have, and when you can combine that as a phys physician, it certainly is powerful. So if God is calling some of you into medicine, um, be serious about that call, and just realize that God isn't calling you into medical mercenary work. It's a medical missionary work. So just remember that. Um, here's another thing about Christmas trees. I think we've already answered that. Okay, this is good. Aren't there some things in Ellen White's writings that refer to things that aren't meant for our times, such as bicycles and bathing and that kind of thing? Okay, so let's talk about the bicycles. You know, if you go to Walmart and buy a bicycle, you can get one for, what, $100? I don't know. Something like that, 100 to $200. And depending on how you save money and things of that nature, if you're going to use a bicycle to get around the campus here or for whatever you're doing, that's a reasonable cost compared to how much money you would spend for, like, a Mercedes or a Lamborghini, right? Yeah. Like, if you go and you're a faculty member here at Washita Hills, and you roll in with a Lamborghini. Yeah, that's going to be like, what are you doing here, right? I mean, it's just Lamborghinis and Washita Hills just don't fit, right? And I might add, I would, let me say, I would never, ever expend that much money on a car, okay, right? That's stupid. You know how many people could be saved to the kingdom of God with the money that I spent on that Lamborghini that I could have spent on a Toyota Camry, right? Okay, so when Ellen White spoke of the bicycle issue, bicycles were a brand new thing. And actually, Dr. Clark and I were just talking about this last night. Bicycles were a brand new thing. And what was it, a half year's wage that they were spending on it? Yeah, so they were spending $150, which was a half year's wage. So whoever you are, if you're going to spend a half year's wage on transportation, and these are people that, especially in the Lord's work, 
you understand this, if, if you're not making huge sums of money, to then go out and spend money on the latest fad that is a, a tremendous expenditure. That's what Ellen White was talking about. Now, shortly after that, the prices of bicycles came down. And so if you're to go to Walmart today and spend $100 on a bicycle in our day and age, $100 compared to $150, you know, 150 years ago is very different. But the principle is if you show up to watch at a Hills in a Lamborghini, you get the point, right? You would be getting a testimony from Sister White. <laughs> about the purchase of your Lamborghini and the witness that it creates that your treasure is here on this earth, not in heaven. And that's what she was speaking of. Now, the issue of bathing, um, she encouraged people to take baths before Sabbath, if at all possible. And um, the, the reason being is that there was so much effort expended into... Um, um, getting the water ready and um, are there any anything else down here um, getting the water ready for the bath i mean they it was a big ordeal and you know the interesting thing is with all the work that was involved in um, preparing a bath they were able to do it before sundown hours you know how easy it is to get a bath before sabbath now so if they could do it when it was so hard back then why is it so hard for us now just Think about that. So, um, all right. <clears throat> now, this is a very good question. As a doctor, what is your stance on Ellen White's counsel on avoiding drugs and drug use? How should we interpret those that seem all-encompassing, not just in the context of the harmful drugs of her day? And that is a great question, whoever asked that. And certainly, as a physician, I do prescribe medication. Um, and um, the question is, um, you know, how do we understand Ellen White's counsel on the proper or improper use of what she called drugs, what we call medication today? Well, first of all, I would say that um, there were f very few, if any, drugs in her time that were good. I mean, you're talking about strychnine, arsenic. I mean, have mercy. That stuff was awful. Um, that, that's, that's the first thing I'll say. And nobody in good conscience today is prescribing arsenic or strychnine. Now, she does specifically condemn morphine as a medication that um, is harmful and addictive. And that is a medication that in my practice I do not prescribe um, because of its addictive um, properties as a narcotic, um, and people get hooked on it. Um, but she also, um, in a period of time where um, her, she and her family were going to be exposed potentially to malaria, they went ahead and, um, and took, um, what was it, um, quinine. Um, so it wasn't like she never used um, what you would call drugs or medication because um, malaria is fatal many times. In fact, I know of a, a young lady who almost died from malaria a few years ago, um, and she's someone who goes to GYC now. And, um, you know, so um, in that instance, Ellen White says you have to do the best you can. Um, so... Um, I do believe that most of the time medication is overprescribed and that people rely on medication to be their fix rather than getting to the root of the problem. And I talk about this with my patients that um, you can't go to the pill to fix your underlying problem when your underlying problem is bad choices and lifestyle. So you've got to fix the, the bad underlying elements and don't expect a pill to fix your problem. The other thing is, is that um, there are many medications today that are plant-based that weren't around in her day. So I'm not as concerned about certain plant-based medications that are available. You may understand that aspirin um, comes from the bark of a willow tree. So you could call that a natural remedy. Um, so... Um, <coughs> 
just keep that in mind that um, do I believe that medication is overused and overprescribed? Yes, and especially in the area of narcotics, and that is something that um, I, Ellen White gives clear counsel on, and we want to make sure that we're following that. Um, when it comes to like vaccines and you know taking Ellen White and her family took quinine before potential exposure to malaria, they took it. So um, just keep that in mind. That was an excellent question. Um, very, very good. Um, let's see, how are we doing on time here? We definitely have time to go through some more of these. That was another bicycle question. We talked about that. Um, oh, this is a good question. How would you deal with this? You are convicted on something and then your family thinks you are being too scrupulous and over anxious. Well, you know, um, without knowing what the issue is, make sure you're not being over scrupulous or over anxious. Um, I mean, I have known of. I'll mention this and I'll get to the root of the issue. I mean, I, I knew someone one time who had a bit of OCD and if a pencil dropped on the floor, they would use tissue paper to pick it up so they wouldn't get germs on their hand. Now, I'm assuming you're not referring to that, but um, you can be a bit too scrupulous and I would use that as an illustration that you're using tissue paper to pick up a pencil that fell on the floor because you're afraid you're going to get germs on your hand. That would be an illustration of being too scrupulous, right? But um, on the other hand, if you're, you're convicted that the seventh day is the Sabbath and your family thinks that that is ridiculous and you know from the Bible that you need to follow the seventh day as the Sabbath. The Bible makes it very clear, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. If you're convicted on the light of the Sabbath or perhaps the light on another doctrinal area or maybe it's an area of standard where you're convicted that, hey, my family is eating meat and I want to become a vegetarian, I want to become a vegan, and they're saying, man, you're being too scrupulous and you're like, no, I'm going to follow what the Bible says, I'm going to follow what the spirit of prophecy says then you can be nice about it. You can be loving about it. Now, I hope you wouldn't be like some people could be, where when you go home for Christmas and you sit down at the table, you're like, oh, no, you're serving chicken to us again. Don't you know what chicken has in it? <laughs> and then you wonder why they don't want to hear anything that you have to say. Um, but when the, the chicken plate is passed around, you just politely say, no, thank you. And then at a later time, you share why in a Christ-like way. That's the best that I can answer that question. But I would say if it's something that's clear from inspiration that you're convicted on, you're not being too scrupulous. You're not being over-anxious. But if you're um, like convicted that you need to leave your house at 50 degrees at all times so that you can have proper circulation, then your family might have a point. So um, just, it, it depends on what the issue is. And um, believe it or not, I've seen um, both situations in my life um, among various people. So, um, all right, a few, a few other things. Um, your statement about Sutherland and McGann following all the counsel they had, sometimes it can seem impossible to do, but God does not ask us to do things that cannot be accomplished. Thanks. Well, so it's sort of a question answer within the thing. You kind of answered the question, but just remember again, yeah, sometimes, wow, following everything that God has asked us to do, but you know, as Ellen White says in Christ's Object Lessons, all of God's biddings are enablings. So if you look at something as a promise rather than I have to do this, it's like, oh, praise the Lord. I don't have to eat that food anymore. Um, you know, then it's a bidding from God that he's going to enable you to do, and it's not going to be so hard for you to, um, to do so. Okay. A few other questions. 
do you think that spicy food is harmful or even sinful according to Ellen White? You know, Ellen White makes it very clear that we should avoid spicy food, right? And um, why does she say that? Um, usually, now there's various spices. Of course, vinegar is one of the issues, and I think cinnamon as well that she talks about. And I can tell you as a physician that um, those things, those vinegar, cinnamon, similar things, are harmful to the lining of your stomach. And, you know, people can make fun of um, some of these ideas, but there's also a thing called heartburn. Do any of you ever, ever heard of heartburn? Gastroesophageal reflux disease. And so they're eating all sorts of spicy food and then they're on protonics or omeprazole or lanzoprazole or Prevacid or you name it, all these proton pump inhibitors, Nexium, then there's the H2 blockers um, like ranitidine or cimetidine. And, um, <laughs> but then the medication can give you um, a bit of a bad taste. So the food that you enjoyed so much now doesn't taste as good because you're on proton pump inhibitors so that your reflux isn't so bad. So, yeah, just keep that in mind. <laughs> All right, how are we doing? Now this is a medical question. What do you know about hydrocephalus? This isn't really of any particular spiritual value, but um, hydrocephalus is a condition in the brain where there may be a blockage or some kind of a pressure buildup where the ventricles inside the brain that contain the cerebral spinal fluid become enlarged, and as they become enlarged, you, get, you um, have a feeling of pressure. Oftentimes, you'll have headaches, and depending on the type of hydrocephalus you have, sometimes you may even need to have a shunt to drain the fluid off, um, but that's um, a medical issue, and sometimes it comes up, and if you have that, you would need to have it dealt with. Now, the, in the elderly, there's a condition called normal pressure hydrocephalus, um, which is associated with memory loss, urinary incontinence, and um, magnetic gait, and um, I'll be testing you on that on your next, no, I'm kidding, but... Um, <laughs> But, you know, for those of you who are young, you don't need to worry about that. Um, but, um, but, yeah, if you have hydrocephalus, I would not leave it undealt with because it can cause um, long-term complications that can be avoided if you treat it um, appropriately. So that's basically, um, I think, all of the questions now. So if you have any other questions that I didn't answer um, that you have, um, I'm, I'd be happy to talk to you afterwards. So um, why don't we, um, yeah, I, if someone has a question, they can come talk to me. That's fine. Um, so why don't we go ahead and um, um, as far as possible kneel for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us here this weekend, and we thank you for this opportunity that we have had to spend some time reflecting on the gift of prophecy that you have given to our church. Lord, I pray that as, you know, as we reflect on this weekend and as the, thing, the things that we've talked about, I pray that we would not be like Brother Stephen Smith, who was convicted of the truth of the spirit of prophecy, but he resisted it. And 27 years later, found out what his life had been like, and he could have avoided it. Help us to follow your counsel and to be happy and joyful in the Lord, following the counsel that you've given to us. We pray that we would be on the Lord's side and accept her writings, understanding that you have spoken through her in these last days. Um, help us to have a, a proper understanding of her authority in our church Help us to use your writings properly. Help us to not be de deceived or discouraged by criticisms or charges that are out there that can be easily answered and, and dealt with. And as we face personal issues in our lives, whatever it may be, maybe we have questions about diet or dress or various standards or what we should be doing, whatever it may be, 
May we follow what the Bible says. May we follow what the testimony of Jesus says. And may we be found faithful when you come. So I thank you for this opportunity that we've had to reflect on the gift of prophecy. And may each one of us, as Ellen White said on her deathbed, she said, I know whom I have believed. May we know whom, who we believe every day of our lives until Jesus comes. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.